Welcome to season two of Outstanding Women Leaders, Witty and Wise Conversations. I'm your host, Katie L. Leeds, leadership and relationship coach by day, comedian and writer by night. I'm on a mission to host 100 million Witty and Wise Conversations that disrupt the way leaders think and the way the world lives in relationship to each other. It's time to start connecting our left and right brain to our loving hearts and begin listening to what they have to say. The brain will want to continue on the path previously traveled. It feels safe there. The heart barely has a path to follow, allowing passion and purpose to dictate the way. Get ready to disrupt business as usual in your brain and get ready to start following your heart. Listen, it's calling for you. My heart is always calling for me to dance in conversation, to feel the rhythm and vibrations, the ebbs and flows as we exchange energies, wit, and wisdom. My brain really quick is going to interject to invite you to check out owlprofessionalcoaching.com backslash podcasts for more episodes and to head over to Apple Podcasts or Podbean and write us a quick review or find me on the gram and FB at Owl Professional Coaching or Outstanding Women Leaders. That's enough about me. Our rules today are expired by the Coactive Training Institute to create space for powerful connection and authenticity. Rule number one for our conversation, nobody gets to be wrong. Rule number two, nobody gets to be right. Rule number three, everybody gets to be vulnerable. And rule number four, everything is included. If your child walks in, your phone rings, everything's in the podcast. We do not edit here. This conversation is exactly what it needs to be in this moment in time. We've asked our guests to join us via video to allow us to create authentic connection. Eyes are the window to the soul. You will be seen here. You'll be heard. There is space for you. When this conversation comes to our close, I'll ask our guests three questions. If you've tuned in before, you know what they are. If you haven't, you don't want to miss them, so stay tuned to the end. Enough about OWL and podcasts. Let's welcome our guest today. Celine Williams is an international speaker and the founder of Revisionary, a boutique consulting firm providing executive coaching, leadership development, and culture services to human-focused businesses around the world. She's almost 20 years experience working with growing organizations to help them navigate change and build leadership capacity, and is a trusted advisor to leaders and executives in a variety of industries. She's sought after for her expertise in accelerating team performance, designing culture, navigating change, and facilitating effective communication. And my favorite part of her is that she caught the entrepreneurial bug at a young age, turning her ability to help coach kids on the SAT into a business that she sold and turning her first job, a three-month contract, into a 10-year stint <laughs> in the business world. Uh, think, welcome to our, the podcast today. You bring such a wealth of experience, a wealth of knowledge. I love that you did what I couldn't, which was to turn my side hustle of tutoring kids into a full-fledged business. <laughs> you are amazing. Welcome. Well, thank you. I also, I appreciate it. I'm very happy to be here. And I, it was the nature of the weird niche I fell into that I, or create slash created, but really fell into in many ways originally that allowed it to become that side hustle, right? That really became something that a business that I ran um, until I sold the, the IP for it. It was the combination of a great opportunity that I was like, <laughs> I think a lot of what happens to me in my life, truthfully, Katie, is that something happens. And I'm like, sure, I'll try it. Why not? Let's see. what. <laughs> and then we just kind of, it. sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. I love your willingness to try. And I think there's probably a little bit more to just saying yes, because you also say no to things to create room for you to say yes to some things. Um, right now you're saying yes to helping entrepreneurs and companies. I am. 
Uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing to support them. Absolutely. So I, I'll start by addressing this because I'm a big uh, proponent of niching. <laughs> Every time people I hear, you know, I work with entrepreneurs and companies, if I were on the receiving end of that, I'd be like, that doesn't sound like a niche. But the reason I say that is um, I work with companies that are very entrepreneurial in their approach. So even though some of them are really large, they have more of that startup entrepreneur energy inside of them, which is a key link between working with entrepreneurs and working with organizations, right? Because they're not, I'm not working with traditional banks. I'm not working with traditional insurance companies. I'm not working with traditional law firms. That's not how they approach things and their lens on what they want to create in the world is not, doesn't align with how I show up in the work that I do, right? So like I'm a proponent of continuous improvement. When you're in a bank, you don't, traditionally, I'm not saying all banks, I don't want to throw them all under the bus, but continuous improvement is not a huge piece of your approach, right? It's about stability. It's about creating something repeatable and that you can automate and as much of that as possible, which is important, but there has to be a balance of continuously improving today, in my opinion. So all of that. So the work that I do is I help, um, I always say that the mission that I'm really driven by is um, helping people identify and step into the best version of themselves and then enabling them to create that space for other people. So when I do it with entrepreneurs, I don't, um, I don't usually often anymore, at least this is the joy of having learned, having said yes to things in the past and now know when to say no. Um, I don't work with really early stage entrepreneurs who are figuring everything out and have a lot on the go. I think that's a wonderful, there's so many people who do really incredible work around that and it's a powerful space and it's not, I've done it, it's not my favorite thing, but I do work with entrepreneurs that are a bit more established. They often have small teams. They're looking at really stepping into the impact and influence they want to be having and being the type of leader because you're a leader, whether you have a team of one or a team of 5,000, I don't care, you're still a leader. Um, being the type of leader they want to be and showing up the way they want to show up. And then I work with leaders and organizations um, either one-on-one or I do a lot of team coaching, which is something that I'm building out in a very particular model right now Um, and culture design work. So how do you create the culture that you want to see inside an organization or a team intentionally as opposed to it happening because it's going to happen either way. Mm, so many good nuggets there. Um, I'd love to touch a little bit on team coaching. Yeah. Uh, as someone that's been on a team, uh, I know that it can get a little bit uh, tense on the, on a team. So what does team coaching look like? Are you there to call out the elephant or like hold the elephants back? Both. Uh, it depends on the situation. So I will tell you how I do it and how I've been playing, how I've been building it out this year. Um, because it's different than how I've done it before. And it's a bit of a, and I'm not, by no means am I saying that this is, I'm the only person doing this. I'm not implying that. I'm sure there are other people. It's just, this is how it has come to fruition for me really over the course of this year when working with one particular team for the full year, as opposed to just part of the year to really see the benefits. So, and I have people who are doing it in other places and in other orgs and teams as well, you know, based on this model who are seeing great success with it. So um, it is both individual coaching and then team coaching as well. And so I, I work with each of the leaders 
uh, one-on-one. So we have um, coaching sessions, regular coaching sessions that are for them. And then I participate in their regular team meetings as an observer. So I'm not necessarily there to participate. Sometimes I do. Sometimes people will ask an opinion or question or whatever, but I'm not there as a, I'm not facilitating that meeting. I am very much there observing. And then I have the opportunity to spot trends or spot reactions based on knowing everyone individually and seeing the dynamics to be able to, to be able to, in those meetings, sometimes call things out and be like, I feel like you're not like addressing what's really going on here. Can we talk about X? But also having sessions outside of those meetings, because I'm not there to facilitate necessarily but having sessions outside those meetings where it's like, hey, here's a trend that is coming up that I'm seeing in a lot of the discussions I'm having. So I'm not calling one person out. It's, it's not about that, but it's trends. Here's a trend I'm seeing. I'm seeing there's a lot of avoidance of these conversations happening. Let's get into what's really going on. And let's get to the root of what that is. Um, and helping them through those conversations navigate with each other as well. And navigate their own one-on-ones as a result of some of the teamwork that we do and then also the one-on-one work so it's oops, sorry it's gonna get lots of noise apparently um but having them having that layer of not just the one-on-one coaching and one-on-one coaching the entire team right so not just one person so it's not just me coaching katie it's me coaching katie and her teammates her first teammates gives me context and information that then makes the team coaching way more effective than what I have done and what I think what I've seen a lot modeled, which is just team coaching, right? You jump in with a team only. So it's the speed at which people are changing, the impact it's having, the amount of alignment that has come out of this year has been like shocking and not, and I'm not saying that as me, it's actually their, you know, their CEO and their president who was like, what? I did not expect it to be like, I was like, no, me neither. This is amazing. Mm, um, tell me, where do those breakthroughs happen? Where does, what do you see as a trend in what you're able to shine lights on for people? Um, it's really varied. It's been really interesting. I'll tell you a few that have come up in different spaces. Um, someone who realized who would have said who would have told you that they were a really phenomenal communicator and that was one of their strengths realizing that in fact the impact they have and what they think they are communicating is not what they're actually communicating most of the time which was a like massive breakthrough and realization and it was they credit me far more than they should for this I, i you know this was really them listening inside and hearing inside of our coaching calls and then and then having that reflected back in the team coaching when things weren't landing and the shift when they changed how they were communicating and how it did land that was that had them put two and two together and be like oh wow it's not the skill i thought i don't have that skill in the way that i thought i had it um a lot of i think the biggest one across the board that i see is an openness to different perspectives and an understanding that my perspective is not everyone's perspective. And I think 
one of the benefits. So one of the things I do a lot of is breaking down down people's assumptions and questioning them, which is really very fun to be friends with me because uh, I will always call out assumptions and <laughs> biases in a rather obnoxious way. But it's great for work. It's great in the work that I do because by helping people break down assumptions, it helps them become aware that there are other perspectives. It helps them get out of black and white thinking. And it's so easy to get into black and white thinking, whether it's about a person or a situation. And when we're on a team, when we're working in those environments, we are reinforcing those narratives, whatever they are, positive or negative, we're reinforcing them constantly. So I would say one of the biggest things is being able to break down consistently, whether it's assumptions or biases or whatever it is based on who the people are, and then have them in an environment have a different experience and have them in an environment get out of black and white thinking with each other has changed how they show up with themselves, with their, their teammates, with their, the people who report to them. It's been really interesting to see that the difference that makes as um, over the course of the year. And again, I had someone point out to me this year, this is, it's been really interesting to have people point out to me that this is the, one of the biggest pieces of value that I brought to that team is having someone external who isn't stuck in the culture and the biases and assumptions in the same way, noting them and calling them out consistently, not just with one person who then goes back to the team and gets right back into it, but with every person so that they're all a little uncomfortable inside of it and they're all in that discomfort together. That's real. That's been really interesting to see because you, that discomfort leads to vulnerability and vulnerability leads to courage and all of these things happen together as a result of it. Mm. Yeah. I always say the, the currency of trust is vulnerability. I know that we, there's some consistency over time that people like to tack on to that trust, but I'll come in and I've never met you and I'm going to get your trust and we're going to be vulnerable because we're going to be vulnerable together. Um, You kind of answered my next question as you were talking through this. I thought, man, like, an HR director, can they, even though our HR partner whose job is supposed to be a coaching, like can an inside person do this, which you've worn some of those hats before, or is it really that important that you bring in that outside perspective? Because black and white thinking, you know, the scarf model and seeds, like <laughs> you can't help but be biased. And if you've been in the culture for any longer than a few minutes, you already have biases, whether you're aware of them or not. Yeah, it's, I think there are certain things that internal coaches are excellent for and certain things that external coaches are excellent for. I do not think, and this is my bias and I will own it, I do not think team coaching with an internal coach is particularly effective, generally speaking. It becomes facilitation. And listen, Facilitation is a tool that I use as well. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not, but that's what it becomes. It does not become coaching. It does not become pointing out blind spots. It becomes facilitation. And I think that is a gap for internal coaches when they're doing team coaching. I think for when we're talking about performance or we're talking about certain pieces of development, an internal coach who has a deep understanding of the people and the culture 
is going to move stuff forward significantly more effectively and efficiently than someone who every call has to get up to speed on who this person is and what's happening and et cetera, et cetera, which happens with external coaches. Um, this, the, you know, what it's really interesting because when you cut, when you note that internal external, what I immediately think is it's the work that I've been talking about is a really interesting blend of the two in the sense that by working with each person on the team, on one team, not every team, individually, I get enough of the context to have enough of the information to be effective in certain ways like an internal coach would be while still remaining not fully immersed in the culture to have all the biases. Yeah, that's why I'm a fan of the 360 tool and not like a, here's a, a survey, please fill this out, but sitting down and actually interviewing as a coach coming in to work with someone. Do you do 360s or how else do you, yeah. I do. So I do a lot of 360s. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm certified in the 360 tool as well. So I use that quite often when working with new people. Um, but I've actually uh, created a number of 360s for organizations as part of their leadership development based on what I found valuable when starting with their organization. So I think it's really important. I think that, and I think the challenge in that is that the information you get at the starting point, and I think it's super valuable, often becomes even for a coach, the information that we're operating off the rest of the time, other than what the coach G is telling us, which is their perspective and story. So it works really effectively as a starting point, And at a certain point, it can become a gap or a blind spot for us as coaches. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're just, if you're doing your job as a coach, that 360 feedback should change in a few months, right? Exactly. And I will tell you, there's not a lot of appetite inside of organizations or for leaders. I think it's different if it's, you know, depending who, who your ideal coaching client is, but in, in busy growing organizations and with a lot of leaders, there's no appetite to go back and do another 360 in three or six months. No, and they're kind of expensive. You're going to hire someone to do them properly as well. Like exactly. I'm not cheap to do a 360. It's just like, is that the only tool? It's a good point. I mean, I think about like career, career circles or other ways that you can constantly be creating your own 360. As an individual business owner, I just actually did a 360 on myself in December and I got to ask my partner because we just moved in together and it's like a, um, and it, they're so helpful. And, um, I'm really high on self-awareness like I got a 10 out of 10, but when I, my, my management was of my own emotions were a struggle. I'm like, well, that makes sense. I moved to COVID. <laughs> I started a new business. Things have shifted for me. Yeah. Um, but what I really got to see a 360 myself, of course I have my own biases about myself, but was just really how I show up. Like I went in looking at it as this is all feedback and really encouraging people to learn kind of these are okay so these are some really great questions to ask you can go have some conversations with these same people and ask these drop some of these questions in there and you'll really learn a lot about yourself i think it's a really valid point because we don't you know one of the feedback is just data feedback is just data and information about who how we're showing up and the impact we have on people and we attach a whole bunch of emotions to it and we attach a whole bunch of stories to it. And we have a whole bunch of experiences with it. And like, I'm in the middle of creating a workshop about feedback. So this is like hyper top of mind for me. So I love that you brought this up because we really should be 
not waiting for feedback to come to us. We should be soliciting feedback constantly. This is part of my whole obsession with continuous improvement. If we are soliciting feedback, if we are in the process of growth, then whether it's positive or negative, we are going to be able to take it for what it is, which is the data that is intended to help us grow and move forward from that. And I think the challenge is that often as coaches or very successful leaders, we are more in the process of not, I'm not saying everyone, and I'm not saying perfectly. We are more in the process of soliciting feedback and of self reflection and self improvement and therefore self awareness than the average person is. We are. And where we can trip ourselves up sometimes as coaches is that when you look at those other areas of social that go along with awareness, like for myself, when I looked at how I'm managing emotions, which is that other area, we typically do a little bit better job of this for myself. I'm like, how can I be super aware? And I suck at managing my emotions for me, just becoming aware that I did poorly. (laughs) Duh. Um, the shift that I had in like three weeks and in around at that time, I also did the 360 we are and, and our relationship because we're doing it so much with feedback changes as a result. I didn't always have this relationship of feedback, right? And there's no 23 year old that's out there like, tell me how shitty I am. That's just not how it works. No. Um, even as a teacher where I used feedback for kids, it was supposed to be empowering. And, it, you know, not this Oreo sandwich of feedback, like, good job, this sucked a little bit, good job, but it's empowering because it is just information and what you choose to do with it today. Do you choose to use it? Do you choose to toss it? Um, do you choose to just be like, huh, do you choose to notice it? Uh, how do you help your clients deal with feedback that doesn't fit into their black and white worlds? Uh, so, um it depends on the client. Uh, I am, I encourage everyone who I work with and some do it more than others to be very intentional about soliciting feedback from their peers and their people on a regular basis. And we talk about how they respond to feedback in the moment because the biggest gap in, in getting, giving and receiving feedback and there's really, inter- I'm, I don't remember the study, but there's really, there's data out there that basically says people who are receiving feedback always or consistently, it's, I don't know what the percentages are. I don't have the data in front of me, but they consistently say that the problem is that the way they were given the feedback was not effective. And the people who are giving feedback say the problem is the way that the people received the feedback was effective. So basically what we know about feedback is we all suck at giving and receiving feedback. So we can teach people how to give feedback, not the sandwich model. It's the worst. Let's stop doing it. I can teach people, right? Like I can teach people different models of feedback. I can say, okay, if you think of like, um, thanks for the feedback, the book by Susan, what is, why I can't remember their names. It's a, there's lots of information on there, but if you think of that, they talk about three types of feedback, right? They talk about, um, acknowledgement. They talk about feedback, which is constructive. And they talk about coaching conversations, which is how to do better. These are their three types of feedback. We can teach you a thousand models and how to set up that when you're giving someone acknowledgement versus a coaching conversation to use that model because it's three pieces. None of it matters if we don't know how to receive feedback. So 
I think the biggest thing that I spend time with people working on is their response to feedback in the moment. Whether you think recognizing what the, what the trigger is, right? Is it that you have a contentious relationship with this person? So you're unwilling to hear what they say. Is it that this feels very personal? Is it something that you've been criticized about in the past? Re starting to recognize what those things are and regardless in the moment, how do you respond to that feedback? How do you graciously say thank you? If you need time to reflect because you're feeling defensive, um, thank you, I really appreciate this. I would like to think about this for a couple of days. Can I circle back around with you then? Whatever the case, you know, there's lots of different responses based, but how do we set it up for the receiver to receive feedback in a way that enables a conversation to continue now or later, depending on their response and how appropriate it is. And then in that interim, what are they taking out of that feedback? What is really there for them? Because it doesn't have to be that, Katie, you think that I'm overly critical and you're really frustrated with how critical I am. I don't have to walk out of there going, I'm overly critical. I need to change how I approach things. What I do need to walk out of there with is an understanding that the impact I'm having on you is that what that I am coming across as being critical. If my intention is not to be critical and I'm very clear that actually what I'm trying to do is whatever my intention really is, how do I, how do I take that information that it's landing for you as critical and change my behavior to try and improve that? And if I don't agree with it at all, it's okay that I go, actually, this is really effective with everyone else in my life. And these are the results. And I appreciate that that's your perspective and I'll adjust to make things land better for you, but this is not a thing I'm going to change generally. There's lots of different responses, but it's the ability to in the moment receive it and then take the time or grace or headspace or whatever to, to see the information inside of it and decide what to do with it. You don't have to take every bit of information out there as you need to change who you are. That's not what feedback is about. Yeah. And that is, that is a hard one for people to not take feedback as who you are. Uh, our, I mean, our identities are so wrapped up in this sense of self. And as coaches, we're always looking at values and like what fulfills us and our purpose. But I had a time in my life where I didn't know any of that. My identity was I owned a gym and I was a wife and I had lost 60 pounds. Like this is who I am. And anytime anything maybe threatened that, whether it was, well, you own a gym, but you can't do this movement or, oh, you own a gym, where's your six pack? Anytime part of that was threatened, you know, our brain immediately goes into this place. Um, when we identify with that, it's like, oh, light goes off where our identity is being attacked. You know, for me, I think about that first step to really receiving and giving good feedback is understanding underneath of that. Um, that who you are right now without this feedback or with this feedback is enough. Yeah. I mean, I always, I, a mantra that I have that um, I share with people who are in, not everyone is into this sort of thing, but it's kind of an underlying thing that, that drives me is the idea that I'm whole, complete and perfect just the way I am. It does not mean, and by the way, black or white thinking for years, I did not accept that because I always wanted to be better. I always wanted to be better at something. So I can't be whole, complete and perfect just the way I am if I want to be better. Actually, these things and thoughts can coexist. 
I can accept that I am whole, complete, and perfect just the way I am and take any criticism or input or data or want to be better or want to have more or whatever the case may be at the same time. These are not, it is not one or the other, like almost everything, it is both and. And that's what that is, right? Like, yes, I can be perfect just the way I am. I am enough right now in this moment and I can still want to be a better communicator. Hmm. I love that. I also love this idea of feedback. Uh, we could teach this at kids at a much younger age of, uh, is being information about the person that's giving you the feedback. It was uh, when I, as a teacher, how I grade is not going to be how that teacher perceives this. And we don't teach kids that. So what are we doing in the workforce? We're doing what we did when we were in school. We're trying to shape and mold ourselves to get whatever it is that you want. Uh, versus stepping back and taking a look at the feedback and saying, okay, what it, this is about this person and what this person wants or what this yep. person views. And, and yep. so we're so wrapped up in our damn selves. We don't see that. <laughs> no, well, I mean, we, we, we are, our brains are wonderful places. They're wonderful. And we are stuck in them all the time. You get real <laughs> lost up there. Dr. Seuss like, has a whole book about it. Oh, the right? places that you'll go. <laughs> yep. Uh, before we hopped on this call, we talked about a little bit with generations because you've done a lot of uh, research and training on the generation gaps. And when you look at feedback, your know, feedback and how we gave feedback has changed from generation to generation. You know, as a kid, if you're a millennial, I'm an elder millennial, so I didn't get a trophy for everything. But if you got older, you got feedback all the time about how great you were. And then you went to work and then you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> what happened to all this feedback? What do you see in those trends for the generations? Well, it's, so feedback is really interesting with generations because it, it, it has changed significantly. And each of the previous generations scoffs at how the generation beneath them or below them or younger than them has been given feedback, right? So I look at the younger millennials and the Gen Z who got rewarded for everything and I'm like, that was so like what why what? just a participation trophy why when that doesn't make any sense because that was just not real that was not how no i was right five kers but that's how yeah. i feel about you and your little damn medals because you crossed the fucking finish line like i think i could walk it and still get one of those sorry I, no but like I, that's not you know that is the reality for people who are 10 years younger than i am and i don't it, to me, it just creates a sense of entitlement. Like I am due something. That's the person. And I'm saying this is the perception I have. I'm not saying it's the truth. It's the perception I have. Um, and then you look at someone who's 10 years older than me, who got nothing but criticism. And this is how you do better. And there was no encouragement. And to their credit, you, first of all, they have one of two things, either an incredible growth mindset because every piece of feedback that they've taken, they're like, cool, let me do better. And they strive and they grow and, or they just don't listen to any of it. There's, because they're so used to hearing it. They're like, whatever, that's just your opinion. Whatever, that's just your opinion. Whatever, that's just your, so there, it, it really, how they take, how we take feedback is really different depending on, depending on our age, depending on the generations that we are in. And also, as we get older, to what you were saying, as we get older, we tend to get better at taking, at giving, or at receiving, oh my God, at receiving feedback 
because, and I'll talk from, I'll speak for myself. My ego is less in this than anything else. My, you telling me that I am terrible at something does not destroy my sense of self anymore. Yeah. It just doesn't. My ego is not so fragile that I can't take that information. Sure, sometimes it hurts if it's unexpected or if it shatters a sense of identity that I hold very true to myself because that's a big one. Or, you know, when my mother was alive, she was the greatest source of feedback and I was super defensive with all of it all the time because that is my mother who was highly judgmental and critical and all of that stuff would come up, right? So it's by no means to say that it's perfect, but as I've gotten older, every piece of feedback doesn't undermine my, my sense of self in a way that it did when I was you know, 24, 23 years old, 21 years old. So I think it's a combination of the generations, each generation having different, um, having been raised differently with feedback. So my father was, um, I think technically the lost generation. I don't know. He was born in 26. So pre-baby boomer. My mother was a baby boomer. My father was a pre-baby boomer. And they were really different. My dad, you could tell him the most harsh critical feedback and he would take it in stride and move forward and keep moving forward and get his nose to the grindstone and get it done. There was no question, good or bad. If you praised him, he was more uncomfortable with that than anything else because that was not the reality of growing up. In that the was set, a you know. feedback that he didn't have experience with. Yeah, that was not a real thing in England in the 1920s. <laughs> not his experience, working class. Nope. So that, and a lot of people of his generation are similar in how they were raised. My mother's generation was, there was more acknowledgement of success and opportunities, but it was still, you got a lot of harsh feedback because the lens was feedback is what helps you like criticism, not even feedback. Let's call it what it is criticism. That's what helps you grow. The more critical I am of you, the more you're going to grow. So she was very, very used to that and also very sensitive about it for certain things. Cause she'd never been taught how to respond when she didn't agree with it. So while she could take it, she could be very sensitive about the feedback that she got. Um, and again, my mother, not a ton of positive acknowledgement necessarily, but the difference was that my mother and her siblings, and interestingly, a lot of people I know in her age group, they have no problem telling you how great they are at things. My dad, you could not have paid him money for him to tell you his accomplishments. My mother, she grew a flower in the garden. Look at the beautiful flower she grew. Because she learned how to acknowledge herself because she wasn't getting it. She got enough of it to know, the new, know that it felt good and then would make up for it herself, which a lot of her generation did, right? So you can really see how that then influences the next generation, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's really interesting to see the trends and then also the differences in age because some of it really is an, an effect of being a certain age and having your identity set or not sent or your brain developed or not developed. Our brains aren't done developing until we're about 30. So like, let's be real, your identity at 24 and the fact that you can't take feedback does not mean you're not gonna be able to take feedback when you're 40. Your brain is still developing. That's okay. Yeah. And when I think about next generation leaders, because that's kind of the thing I'm passionate about, you know, yeah. the, what I hear across the board is that everyone's relationship with feedback sucks. And so if you really want to step up as a leader, 
and you want to have an edge at 25, even though your brain's still getting on its way, which I love that stat. And I wish they told me that when I was in high school so that I could be like, oh, so I'm 37. So like I've got seven years of good brain. Like I feel better about my life. <laughs> yeah. We should tell people this. Yeah, um, I agree. That's why I talk about it. That's why I bring it up. Cause it's like, let's give me, cut yourself some slack. Yeah. And then let's enroll you in a, an adult school at 25 so that we can solidify some neural pathways for you that says you are good enough. And here is your value and who you are. It's like a little school where you stamp them. But in, if I were to wave a wand and solve the pro world's problems of how we relate to one another, uh, it sounds like a good place to start would be how we relate to feedback. I think it is so foundational to, um, I mean, I'm literally just going to tell you something that I, I was writing for this workshop. And that is that we cannot be in relation with other people without constantly getting feedback. Even if I'm not soliciting feedback to you, if I see you roll your eyes at me, if I see your face light up when I walk into a room, if I hand you something and you give it to someone else because you don't like it, every single bit of that data is feedback. It's just that in those situations, we call it data instead of feedback. And women, we are we have the ability in our brains to be so much more sensitive to that feedback. We, from an evolutionary standpoint, like we're back at the cave, like making sure everything's good and also men aren't coming in and the bears and everything. Like we're really great at that. Um, when we're taking it in as information. Like, oh, Bob's tired today. Oh, this person, the uh, shoes, socks don't match. Like we're great at that. But the problem is that we're also, as women, really great about internalizing. Bob looks tired today. Is he bored with what I'm saying while I'm up here speaking? Like, oh, he just adjusted and sniffed his nose. Like, was he making a gesture to her? Because they just made eye contact and laughed. Like, are they talking about me? we do from that we are constantly bombarded with information and it's interesting how the human brain wants to make it about them well exactly and um we have two extremes in the sense that either we tend to observe things like that and that's a katie thing right like i see katie roll her eyes oh katie you know something's going on with katie whatever the case may be or i make it entirely about me and there's no middle ground or bridge that we tend to build between those two things. And so the reason that I think feedback is so important is that if we think of all of that information as feedback, then we start to think of feedback as information. So if we can bridge that gap between those two things and recognize that in order to be in relationship with anyone in any way, shape or form means that we need to be okay with feedback slash information then it changes everything about how we relate to people. It changes the kind of conversations we have. It changes our ability to, you know, grow in the ways that we want to grow to help other people. Like it, it's a game changer when we remove the stigma that we have around feedback um, in general. Yeah. And feedback is about connection. And so if you walk around life and you decide that everything you do is going to be about intentionally trying to connect with that person, then your question for Bob afterwards is, how are you today? Maybe you're curious about how they are, not versus, I noticed you were yawning. Are you, are you bored with my presentation? Um, yeah, I love that your work that you're doing with, um, I love that you're putting together something on feedback for people <laughs> because it's clearly needed. 
Um, and it sounds like if we want to bridge the gap between all the generations, we can just teach them all how to give and receive feedback in a way that connects them. Well, and you know, keep in mind, you know, I keep in mind the world, not you specifically, Katie, but generally the world, keep in mind that there's always something to be learned from the generation before and after us, right? So I can look at how my, at, I always pick my parents as examples because they were two different generations and I'm a different generation, but how each of them get, gave and received feedback and there's some real crappiness in it and some real value in each of it, in each of the ways that they've shown up as well. So what can I take that's positive from each of them and continue to do? And what can I look at how each of them gave or received feedback and stop doing? Mm, so this is the million dollar question then. So let's start with the lost generation. What's the one thing that you take? Uh, resiliency. You can't throw anything at someone from the lost generation and, and they're not going to know, they're not going to figure out a way to get through it because they nose to grindstone, they will make it happen. Mm, yeah, I suppose if you just survive the depression, then your identity isn't really placed on status and things. Uh, what's the one thing you take from the baby boomers? Um, man, they have a hell of a work ethic. <laughs> they have a hell of a work ethic and um, they have an ability to find joy in things or celebrate themselves or whatever you want to call it that I think we have really lost. When I look at, like when we get to Gen X, Gen X does not have, Gen X is like, that's not what they see. That's not how they see the world. And I think the baby boomers really have a positivity and a willingness and desire to see that inside of themselves and other people. Mm, the hippies kept their love alive. It sounds like. Yeah. 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 And I mean, you think about music as such a representation of culture. You can see that in their music as well. Yeah, for sure. So, for okay. So we're taking resiliency. We're taking this joy. What are we taking from Gen X? Uh, we are not taking their natural cynicism. I love Gen X, but oh man, is if that's not a trend that a lot of Gen X has, I don't know what is. Um, I think with Gen X, what is a one word that I would say? I, there, I, there's not a, I'm going to say they're stick to itness. They're stick to it, stick to itness. They, um, they follow through on things and they, and listen, there's always exceptions in every generation. That's, you know, but overall they will weather the storm and not because they're resilient in this. And it's not that they're not resilient, but their resiliency is different than the lost generation. Gen X will start something and they will follow through on it. The lost generation will, whatever happens, they're going to find a way through it. It's very different than here's the thing I'm going to do and I'm going to see it to the end. And I think Gen X is good at that. Mm. Seeing it all the way to the end. I'm not good at that. All right. Millennials. <laughs> I'm more of a like, I see the writing on the wall. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. wait before the hook comes out. Uh, what about the millennials? Um. So I will say that I think the millennials and Gen Z are the more challenging to have lessons from because they're, a lot of them are still quite young. 
right? And I think that there's a lot to be learned still, especially with Gen Z. I think with the millennials, they're, um, I love the rule breaking and questioning of things. Like that is a big one for me, not just accepting things the way they have been. And they're the first generation that has, Gen X started it in some ways, but the millennials have really leaned into it doesn't have to be this way. How can we do it better? That's because you kept giving us trophies. So we were like, <laughs> oh, guys, it doesn't have to be this way. We can just let everybody know they're doing great. Yeah. But I think that's a wonderful thing to, to really change the world the way it needs to be changed. We need people who are going to make the, who are going to ask those questions. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if the boomers would be insulted because they were positioning themselves to be the ones that questioned things. I mean, they did question the hell out of the government for us and we thank them for that. Well, and I, I will say it's not to say that they did, you know, the boomers weren't questioning, but the way that the boomers questioned and listen, change happened, right? Like you look at, um, civil rights movement, like there was lots of stuff that was happening that was positive, but they weren't questioning the underlying constructs that existed. Whereas millennials are really questioning the underlying constructs. The baby boomers were changing how it looked in the world, which needed to happen to start the process for the millennials. We are all dependent on the generation before us. Mm, it's a good point. The millennials are definitely the, con when I think about, I'm going back to government because that's just where my head goes, a history teacher. The millennials are definitely questioning even the, the construct of democracy where that was the, exactly. what they were using. Mm. I love all your insights. I could talk to you for hours on this podcast. I should, we should have hit record earlier for a bonus episode <laughs> so people could hear the brilliant conversation that we were having around the generations and and what's going on with them. I got to teach the millennials and, and also be a millennial. So I kind of have this and, and similar for you as you're working in the workforce, uh, working in the workforce <laughs> with the non-millennials <laughs> as well and getting to coach the millennials. You get to yeah. see that. Yeah. I for love, sure. I love that millennials really allow their creative and resourcefulness to shine through. You don't have to get in the layer a little bit to see it. Uh, yep. No one taught them to keep that hidden because they got, agree. they got trophies, so they didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we go, where can people find you, follow you, learn about you, all that good stuff? They can find me. My website is revisionary.ca. I'm on LinkedIn. It's literally just backslash Celine Williams. Somehow lucked out on getting that bad boy. Um, and then either of those places, you can find links to my Instagram that I almost never post to my Twitter that I almost never tweet from. So probably those are your two best bets. <laughs> I love that. I'd like to point this out. If you're still listening with us, which you should, cause I'm about to drop those three questions. But when people are like, Oh, you're an executive coach. You haven't posted. Like, why aren't you posting on Instagram? Like that's not where your clients are. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm there. It's just, you know, for you guys out there listening, <laughs> so you have access to this and I'm I want to get better at it because I think it's it, executive coaching is the most powerful way to develop people as leaders. And I love that you are empowering leaders. You use the scarf model. You went to coach you, you have all the things you've been crushing it from a young age. So let's find out our three questions today. All right. I feel like there should be a drum roll, but there, there, there's not going to be one. Uh, <laughs> question number one is what's your superpower? Um, I think that it is 
not getting stuck in black and white thinking. I like gray thinking. My superpower is gray thinking. That's what it is. <laughs> the coach in me is curious, like what color gray? <laughs> mm, it depends on the day. It's not just necessarily one color, but truly, I think that is one of the things that, um, that I do more consistently and have been doing more consistently, even subconsciously for a very long time, because I grew up in a way that we were not raised to think that there was black or white or right or wrong. And everything was a discussion from a very young age. I always had a voice and an opinion and it didn't have to be right or wrong, but I got to speak up. And so I'm so, it's so natural for me to encourage that and see that in the world and the gaps in it quite often that I would say that it's, I think it's one of the things that I bring to the table that is not common. Yes. That's, that's why I like getting, I like you so much because <laughs> I live in that same gray area. Mom and dad were different ends of the political spectrum when they first got married. So there was no right or wrong, but there was always discussion and opinions. Yep. <laughs> What's your purpose? Um, I mean, I think I sort of said it at the beginning. It's to enable people to show up fully and completely as the best version of themselves in any circumstance and then create that space for other people. Mm. And you've created that space for me here today. So I just want to acknowledge you for that. And, Thank you. Uh, and coaches are amazing because not only do they have this own inner work that they've done for themselves, but they are able to shine that light for others so that they can go out and do it for everyone else. So thank you for sharing that superpower, your purpose. Before we leave here today, what's next for Celine? Um, once I get some sleep at some point in February, because I'm doing all these workshops that I've already, <laughs> that I've already mentioned, um, I have a book that I am working on that I said I would have done last year, which clearly did not happen because of life and 2020. Um, but I'd like to have that done. And then I just, I want to, I want to have these conversations on a bigger scale, whether it's more podcasts, whether it's more stages, because I, I do miss speaking. But um, for me, it's so important to help people open their eyes to things that they don't realize or think about things differently and get out of that black or white thinking that I just want to keep doing that and just do it on a bigger scale. Yeah. You need to be on a bigger scale. Thank you so much for being on Thank this smaller you. scale here with us, but <laughs> hopefully big for everyone that listens. You have great information to share. I think we love your insights. And it's nice to hang out with people that don't live in the land of black and white. As coaches, we talk to a lot of people <laughs> that are hanging out in that land. And gray is where all the fun and magic happens. Agreed. I'll give you the last word before we go. Um, besides, thank you for having me, Katie. It has been a pleasure getting to speak with you and to have this conversation. I would say that for anyone listening, just be open to the learning that is available to you in every moment. And the faster we can move from defensiveness or reactiveness or judgment, i.e. this generation is a certain way, into accepting it for, for someone else's perspective and curiosity, the more we can move into the growth and learning and opportunity inside of any situation we're faced with. Thank you. Thank you.